Pantheon Podcast. So wonderful to be here, to be here with you. Hope you're sleepy, because we're going to have something for you. And this is Nick St. Nicholas, used to be in Steppenwolf. So with that, wish you a good night. Sleep tight. Welcome to Miss Pamela's Pajama Party, a Pantheon podcast. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. And now, Miss Pamela DeBar. in dolls welcome to miss pamela's pajama party a pantheon podcast you are about to kick back and relax with the world's most famous groupie and don't let anyone ever tell you that i am not because i am the queen of the groupies and proud of it so i'll take that title and i will run with it and you know what it means it means some girl or a guy sometimes who loves to hang out with bands in various capacities right just like i get to do today with the great Johnny Eccles, founder of love. So hang in for that, guys. And, you know, I've written several books. Uh, most famously is I'm with the band, but uh, I also have sequel to that and a bunch of other books. And I do give tours. They're called I'm with the Band Rock Tours of Holly Weird and Laurel Canyon. And I drive people around. Well, I don't drive. I have a fabulous driver who takes people around in my van to all the places in Hollywood where I did wild and crazy things. So it's a very personal tour, and you can sign up at my website, PamelaDebar.com, right now. In fact, I have one on June 9th coming up, okay? And, you know, you can find us, Pantheon Podcasts, on Spotify, Radio.com, Pandora, and iTunes, of course. And you know what? You can go on Google and put in Miss Pamela's Pajama Party, and it'll come up. So please share it with your friends. One of the most important things to us right now is that you share, 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 so people can hear all the wonderful podcasts on Pantheon. I'd like to understand just why. I feel like I have been through hell But you tell me I haven't even started yet To live here you've got to give more than you get That's enough But I said it's alright I'd like to understand today Then maybe I would know who I was When I was, when it was just today The seasons and the reasons are on display well, today's special guest is Johnny Eccles from Love. And I used to see this band play as often as I possibly could at all the clubs in Hollywood. And he's such an important character in, in, the, in the big giant realm of rock and roll. And I cannot wait to share this today with his interview. You're going to just flip out. And if you see and more again, then you will know and more again. Or you can see you in her eyes. 
Dolls, welcome to Miss Pamela's Pajama Party, and I have such a thrilling, exciting guest with me today, someone I've actually been seeing play since 1965, right? Wow, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was in the audience mm-hmm. for Love, one mm-hmm. of my favorite bands from the very, very beginning, and today Johnny Eccles is with us, founding member of Love, and I'm so excited, I, I, my heart's palpitating, so Thank you so much, Johnny, for doing this with me. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for thinking of, <laughs> of me. Of course. You know, I, I didn't really know you back then. No, you were basically a little... <laughs> a little <younger>. groupie. <laughs> a little groupie. Yeah. But I uh, I was hanging out with Brian McLean. Mm-hmm. We right. were really tight. Mm-hmm. So I saw a whole lot of your shows. Mm-hmm. And one always my favorite. Always my favorite. Couldn't miss it. I even saw you at Beat Alito's early, early. Really? You yeah. came down to that? Yeah. Den yeah. of inequity. Yes, I did. <laughs> I did. So I want to get your history pre-love, though. Okay. Okay? Because okay. I know you're from Memphis. Mm-hmm. So let's let's start with your early okay. days. Actually, I was born in Memphis. So was Arthur. We Our families go back to before our parents were even born. So we go okay. back a long way. Huh. And um, Arthur left uh, to come to California before I did because he's a couple of years older. And... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my family moved to uh, Los Angeles, and just by serendipity or whatever, we wound up living a couple of doors down from Arthur in, in uh, Los that, Angeles. Uh, that's cosmic. Yeah. yeah. So I guess we were, <laughs> we were meant to, to be near each other. So. Uh-huh. Wow. And um, there was a gentleman, Adolph Jacobs, who was a guitar player in the Coasters. He was a neighbor. And... Um, so I would hear him playing all the time, and I was fascinated with the guitar, but I had never actually touched one. <laughs> and at school, there's this uh, kid named Danny Oaken, and he was uh, called to the nurse's office for some reason, and we were doing a show-and-tell. So everybody had their thing, and they would show it, show it and talk about it. And he had a Harmony Sovereign guitar, <laughs> and he asked me to hold it for him. And I just strummed the thing, and it just like tickled my soul. It was oh, just so a magical cool. feeling, and <laughs> yeah. I fell in love that uh-uh. that moment on. And how old were you at that time? I was about nine. Wow. And uh, I went home and asked my father uh, to buy a guitar for me. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, being a kid who's fickle and, you know, go from one thing to the next, yeah. my dad said no. <laughs> <laughs> and so I tried to make one myself. And he saw how really, uh, you know, interested in the, you know, uh, playing the guitar. So he uh, got an $8 Stella guitar at the pawn shop. <laughs> and he said, if you stick with it, I'll buy your real guitar. And You obviously stuck with it. Yeah, yeah. I stuck with it. And uh, next year, um, he bought a guitar. It was a Guild three-quarter size guitar. There's mm-hmm. these... Uh, guys that used to go from door to door selling uh, lessons. He worked for music schools. And so he put my father on the hook for a $300 guitar, which back then was a fortune. Yeah. And uh, they sold Arthur accordion lessons. So he, he played the accordion and I played the guitar. Oh. And uh, Adolph Jacobs uh, started giving me lessons. And I started... Um, 
becoming fairly adept at it. So by the time I was like 13 or 14, little Richard, who would also come to our neighborhood all the time, and he had relatives living there, Jeez. and he would hand out dollar bills to all the kids in the area, so everybody would rush over to his car to get the dollar bills. And um, so uh, we started hanging out uh, with Richard. He would come by and stuff. And um, That's so cool. What did you think of him back then? He was, well, he was always around, but he, I thought he was kind of strange. You know, he was really super flamboyant. And, uh, I'll bet. Yeah, so we fast forward a little bit, and Billy Preston and I were close friends. We went to school together. And so we started our first group, and it was called Billy Preston and the Soul Brothers. Wow, and you were, what, 15 or <laughs> I was 16? about 15 then. That's and, really uh, amazing. Yeah, and so we played fraternity parties, weddings, bar mitzvahs, whatever. They needed music, and we yeah. would play. Wow, you're making and, a living that young. Yeah, huh? we were getting well, paid. We were getting have, paid, yeah, that, that was cool. That must have been really thrilling. That was cool. And so we fast-forward a little bit. Um, Henry Vestine, who was in the canned heat, later he was a friend of ours we knew him from the boy scouts and so he joined the group so it was me billy preston and henry vestine and we continued playing frat parties and things like that and school assemblies and arthur at that point was into sports he wasn't really into music that much other than taking his accordion lessons which his mother forced him to because of having to pay for the thing i, I can't even imagine arthur lee holding an accordion <laughs> yeah he That's got a... to be pretty good <laughs> <laughs> so we were playing an assembly at school and arthur heard us and he saw all of the attention mm. we were getting from the young ladies in the audience yeah and, and he wanted to be a part of it so now, Billy and, and Henry, they weren't having a day really, because you know, they knew he wasn't much of a musician. And um, I didn't even know he could sing. You know? yeah, I was just going to say, did he know he could sing? I don't think he did. I think he just, you know, but he always wrote poetry. Arthur was kind of a street poet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so um, Billy had a burgeoning gospel career, so he left the group to, to uh, pursue that. And Arthur joined us, and basically he was playing bongo and conga drums. Uh -huh. And um, so it kind of moved from there and escalated. I didn't know that he had such a rapport with the audiences, and he was able to just kind of step out, and, and he had this thing that, that he could do. And so we decided, cool, we'll, we'll keep him then. And Charisma, is that the yeah, thing he had? Yeah, that, that would be it, charisma. <laughs> but he just had just such a strong appeal. People just really loved him because he would just start talking and just, you know, chatter on. And uh, we learned that he could, he, he had a pretty decent voice. Mm -hmm. And so he yeah, started, he sure did. started singing and we did more of that. And then... And weren't you called the Lags? When did yeah, that, that was happen? the LAGs. Um, right. uh, Booker T and the MGs were Booker T and the Memphis group. So we thought, well, we'll be Arthur Lee and the LA group. So mm. we're the oh. Lags. But we had oh. several different names. We uh -huh. were the American Four. Uh, <laughs> depending on where we were playing and the type of music we were playing, we would be the same lineup, the same musicians, but um, we would have a different name for, for whatever. And um, so we started getting gigs and clubs, and we played at a place called the Brave New World. Now, this is when we're starting to become love. Uh -huh. We were at the Brave New World, and, and the group was called the Grassroots then. Right, right. And um, Was that 
pre the other grassroots or oh yeah that was before, before that before yeah. they had that name yeah there's a story that that uh, how that came about but we were playing there and um bobby boussolet leader of the manson family i know bobby he you was knew bobby. i knew him yeah. yeah well bummer bob was one of the guitar players in the group he was pretty yeah he had uh well he was a nice kid he wasn't a, right yeah. i i used to make out with him in san francisco uh, um and he had a dog snow mm-hmm. fox he mm-hmm. was a sweet guy yeah. bummer bob, bummer bob him because yeah. he panhandled him yeah <laughs> and arthur had given i think the name bummer because he would often oh. have kind of weird acid trips you know oh. bum acid oh, trips. oh you think that's where I it think came that's from what, but i don't know it could have huh. been you know because he did he was always bumming yeah 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 so <laughs> Anyway, we wow. um, and he wore a top hat. Yeah, he wore his interesting little uh, <laughs> outfits. So we were at uh, Ben Frank's in Hollywood, oh, my and we would see Brian and David Crosby and Jim McGuinn. These guys, mm-hmm. Roger McGuinn. Anyway, yeah, so yeah, he was they, Jim McGuinn then. Right? Yeah, and they um, were kind of whole court there, and everybody would come over, and you know. Yep. And we met Brian there, and we told Brian that we were playing at this place called the Brave New World, and he should come down. So he came down and heard us play and asked if he could sit in. And Boomer Bob allowed him to use his guitar, and Brian started playing with us, and it was just magic immediately. And we knew that. Uh, he, so we asked him to join the group, and of course he did. And we had to unfortunately cut Bob loose. And, <laughs> That's and, a good thing, really, yeah. in the big picture. Yeah. yeah. Um, Brian was uh, originally at that time he was only seventeen or something, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was uh, the Bird's roadie, or he was their roadie, right? Right. Yeah. 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 Gosh, so I used to see him, you know, setting up their equipment. I used to see the birds all the time too. Right. Of course. Yeah. yeah. So he. Um, <laughs> Brought all those. This was the thing we really took off after Brian. So Brian was the impetus for us, kind of um, moving into a different. Because before that, we were kind of a cover band, mm-hmm. and we play whatever the top forty hits were oh, at the time. Okay. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, okay. and then with huh. Brian's influence, we started writing our own stuff. And Arthur had this kind of rivalry going with him. We're moving on a little bit later. And Brian and Arthur were always, they would date the same girls. They would do, you know. And so they had this uh, this thing happening. It was a friendly kind of, you know, rivalry. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so we started, um, as I say, writing our own stuff. And um, the people that were the birds followers, they called them the freaks or the sure. Oh, sure. Vito. Yeah, Vito Vito and Carl. Yeah, I was a dancer with them. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So they would (laughs) come out to see us play. And then so we would go from having a moderate sized crowd to all of a sudden we have an overflowing crowd. All these people coming to see us and freaks. Yeah, the freaks. Because we lived, actually, we lived in. Vito's above Vito's studio, they had this loft there where Franzoni lived. And so, me, Brian, Arthur, and um, uh, Frank Zappa, and we all lived in that. On Laurel Avenue? Yeah. yeah. I yeah. was there. Yeah. So, <laughs> wow. So, that, um, that started it. And then we were, of course, um, playing from the Brave New World. We went to Vito Lido's. This was um, a family owned. It was Bill, uh, Linda, 
Dorothy and Thomas, and that's what Meet Alito stood for. Oh, and, uh, I didn't know. I yeah, didn't even know that either. Yeah, wow, I used yeah. to frequent that all age, mm-hmm. you could, all ages. Yeah. So that's one of the places I could go to. Because initially it was a little Italian restaurant, you know, and they had I the w- little. I wonder yeah, about that. Yeah, they had the little checkerboard uh, tablecloths and stuff, you know. So anyway, we started <laughs> filling that place up. Uh-huh. And they would block off Cosmos alleys and put speakers out in the street, you know. So, wow. yeah. So, um, you have such an amazing history. Yeah, we have an interesting history because oh. you know I've I've kind of skipped a lot, but you know, um, in '64, um, I just gotten out of high school, and um, uh, Jimmy James, who later became Jimi Hendrix, <laughs> yes. was there in Little Richard. So I went to Europe with them. Uh, to Liverpool, and I met these four little guys that were running around, chasing after Richard, and they followed him around, and they were the quarrymen. <laughs> and uh, so we watched them fawn over uh, Richard, and, and um, huh. later when we get back to Los Angeles, we're playing at a club called The Nightlife, and a, a courier came, and he brought this little thing, a little kind of an envelope and it was from Brian Epstein he had given us passes to come to the Hollywood Bowl and we're why is he because we hadn't put it together that That these guys were the Beatles yeah and so we we get there and we said those are the little dudes that followed Richard around And, and it was incredible to see all of those screaming girls and stuff it was just you know, just magnificent. I was at that show. You were at that yes, show. Yes, I well, was. Cool. You yeah. and I are the very close in age. Yeah. You're one year older than yeah. me. So I, I, you were 15, 16, yeah. I was 14 at yeah. that time. Yeah. So we went back and there. forth with that and I thought, boy, now this is this is what we needed to do. So we, uh, of course. <laughs> could, could you see when you're playing with Jimmy and Jimmy James yeah. that he would become what he became? Absolutely I mean, not. <laughs> I would listen because he was kind of a, a journeyman guitar player. He was kind of average, so-so, everyday run-of-the-mill guitar player when I knew him. And um, so we were playing in San Francisco, and there's our friend um, in San Francisco said, man, have you heard this guy, Jimi Hendrix? Now, I hadn't put the two together again. So I'm kind of, you know, dense there. And... Uh, so he said, they're playing down at the whiskey. You guys should see them when you get back. Yep, I was so there too. we go to the whiskey and we see them. I remember Jimmy always wore a right guard. I mean, for some reason, because he didn't have very much money. And so rather than getting his clothes clean, he would just slather himself in right guard. Oh. And I remember smelling you mean the deodorant? right guard. Yeah, right guard deodorant. <laughs> right guard deodorant. And I would get that smell. <laughs> And it was there. And as soon as we get to the whiskey, I started smelling that. But it, I still didn't put it together. And um, so this guy goes on stage and plays. Now he's dressed all flamboyant, you know, in this yeah, school yeah. regalia. He had big hair then. Yeah. yeah. And Arthur said, man, isn't that the dude that played on my session? Well, see, Arthur had written a song called My Diary. Right. And uh, right. Jimmy played on it. Uh-huh. And he said, isn't that the guy? I said, yeah, that's the dude from the California club, Jimmy James. And so anyway, he was entirely different. I mean, this dude could play. And he, you know, what do you think uh, happened? I mean, 
you know, I asked him, did he, if he had taken a trip to the crossroads, you yeah. know, we yeah. laughed about it, but that's seriously something happened uh-huh. because he goes from being just a guy with a guitar to being God with Probably a guitar. Probably three, le- three letters in it, maybe. Yeah. LSD. Yeah, that's, that's a possibility, <laughs> too. But yeah, and he was, you know, of course he remembered uh, us and we went back and chatted with him. And uh-huh, cool. uh, he became very close with Arthur, so they would hang out together uh-huh. all the time. Yeah, but, I remember, um, I remember yeah. when that happened, so, yeah. Um, yeah, and then from that point, uh, love just started to take off, you know. And um, we did um, an album, the first album that we did, and uh, we did a sort of kind of a minor tour because... Other than Texas, that's uh, later on we played Florida, but Texas we couldn't play in the South because of being a racially mixed group. They would want us to play in front of segregated audiences, and we weren't having any of that. That is so brave and yeah. awesome, man. It was but so you were like stupid. the first, though, weren't yeah. you? The first mixed mm-hmm. race yeah. rock band. Yeah. 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 I mean, so, did you think of it yourself like that? Probably not in California. I mean, did you, was that a thing? Well, we wanted a group to reflect who we were and, and the times in which we lived. So yeah. we wanted the best musicians we could get, but also we didn't want to be typecast as an R&B act. And that's what would have happened if it had been an all-black group. So uh, we purposely that? chose to, you know, a yeah. mixed race group. But then, yeah. of course, serendipity, like with, with Brian, that yeah. wasn't, you know. Yeah, he, that just he, was magically yeah, happened, just, right? He yeah, he just fit. Uh-huh. And um, so we toured around and, and played where we could. And we played um, uh, the Dallas Convention Center. And this is a, a, an interesting story. We were, uh, I'm writing a book, so this is part oh, of that. Oh, good. I'm so glad to hear that. We were the on tale. the plane, and um, Brian is poking me. He said, man, look, look. And so I looked. And there was Elvis Presley sitting on the plane, and he says, you know, he <laughs> wow. kind of needed to shave, and, and it, oh. his hair was still that kind of strawberry-ish hair. It wasn't black then, yeah. you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And so oh. we're King. sitting there, and Brian is just in awe, and this is just, you know, this is a real rock star. So yes. <laughs> as the plane lands, there's a humongous crowd of people there on, you know, the, the runway area. And there were these uh, photographers and newspaper people. And he said, that's how a real rock star is. <laughs> and so yeah. we get off the plane. And Elvis, he gets down first. And a security guard said, oh, didn't you used to be Elvis Presley? Because <laughs> what? what's going on? And so as we get off. These guys, security guys, they uh-huh. pull us to the side. And I thought, oh, hell, what have we done? <laughs> and it turns out that our management and Electra Records had worked out a deal with Dallas Love Field to have a promotional thing, and they didn't tell us. Oh. And so all those people were not there to see Elvis. They were to see us. <laughs> and so we get us. I bet Elvis got a bad surprise yeah, there. Yeah, he's looking at it, and he's kind of bemused, you know, because <laughs> so, so, he didn't know who we were. And, you yeah, know, yeah. So, wow. um, anyway, we uh, go up and we <laughs> chat for a few minutes, and um, we get a key to the city, and... It was such a neat, that is really so cool, cool thing. And what was that, 66? Yeah, that would have been yeah. right when the album was released. And uh-huh. we were uh-huh. touring to support it. 
Love so, Field. Yeah. It would have been nice if your management had told yeah, you. Yeah, it would have been cool, but it worked out. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it just a look on our faces as, you know, and, and uh, seeing how everybody related to us, it was so neat. And we were in the South, and we thought, you know, had they told us, we would have had some trepidation about being in the South, yeah. you know, and yeah. all of that. Yeah. But, huh. Yeah, it worked out really cool. And, and um, so we're in, um, we're at the Dallas Hilton, and there's this couple, older couple, and they see Kenny Forsey and me, and I thought, here it goes, they're going to rag on us for being hippies. Yeah. And instead, they said, we saw you yesterday, we had done a local TV show, oh. or, you know, like they had an imitation Dick Clark, right. just about in every city you went to, there was a guy <laughs> yeah. like that. Yeah. And so we were on his show, and anyway, they said, we saw you on TV last night, and these were the sweetest people, and they said, your parents must be so proud, Aww. and so we felt like assholes, for, yeah. you know, we're thinking that these people are going to rag on us and they were really the sweetest people (laughs) and then did did you have people ragging on you ever oh yeah for being you know hippies and stuff we we uh (laughs) you know how they'd come up to hollywood sometimes and and make fools of themselves you know yeah hassling people but yeah so we uh then we went to neiman marcus and uh they gave me a big 10 gallon hat (laughs) <laughs> and we, you know, we're at the table signing <laughs> autographs. So, yeah, that that was cool. And I have fond memories of Texas because of that. Good. Yeah. And and but so you couldn't tour much because now I've well, always heard it was because Arthur wouldn't tour. No, see that was the we was started that... using that as an excuse because it was so uncool to be caught up in something stupid like that yeah. that we would just say it was you know a matter of choice. Okay. And uh, but we did we toured in the east and, and certain parts of like Chicago, Detroit, oh, and Indiana, okay. and places like that. It was just the deep south and parts of the middle America that yeah. we couldn't play uh-huh. because we. Uh, a couple of times we were actually I think we got to Indiana and um, they didn't know about the group's racial makeup and then we get there and the guy wants us to play in front of a segregated audience and we said oh no we're not going to do that so, so, so you wouldn't even perform no then. we didn't perform we just left so, good yeah that was good. You know, we wouldn't be part of that nonsense yeah yeah you know, yeah. So, yeah yeah so well, I, I just read some stuff about you, of course, because I wanted to be up on it. Mm-hmm. And that I just read that was it Forever Changes, that uh-huh. was number 40 in the... And the Rolling Stones. the Rolling Stone. Stones five, Top 500. Uh-huh. That is so incredible, yeah. right? That wow. is incredible. It, and we also got, which was really cool, I think this is a bit of hyperbole, but the um, English, the British Parliament uh, did a pro- proclamation and Love Forever Changes was uh, declared... By decree, the number one rock album of all time. And when we get, this is the thing, when the members of parliament actually bowed down to us. (laughs) What do you mean? Physically bowed? (laughs) Physically bowed. And that's just, you know. When was this? This would have been, well, later after Arthur, you know, went to prison for a firearms thing. So when we get out, this would have been like 2004, I believe. Yeah, you guys reformed, didn't mm-hmm. you, for a while? Yes, yeah. yes. we reformed and, and toured. And um, 
now we could play anywhere, you know. Yes. So we, we <laughs> yeah. uh, played wow. in Miami, and I think we played Georgia, and we didn't get to places like Mississippi. We never would play there anyway. But uh, <laughs> I so, want to yeah. hear how Parliament bowed. Yeah, they um, uh, did thing, and there are a couple of members of Parliament, <laughs> actually. Uh, the guy's name, now, I don't know most of the people that are on our Love Revisited page. They know who he is. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah well. and there was a couple of them, and they actually bowed. So What that did that was, feel like, my God? That's probably one of the most surreal feelings. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh. yeah, we, we've had an interesting life, you know, we've... Um, you know, I can tell you stories about, you know, Arthur and Brian, they, they this rivalry that yeah. they had. And some mm-hmm. of our songs, like the song Stephanie Knows Who, has to do with that. Uh, she was, the Stephanie was Stephanie Buffington. Mm-hmm. And um, we went to the beach one day, and she was in the bikini. And we saw that she, on her side, she had these little scratch marks. And so she told Brian and, and Arthur and I that a tiger had scratched her when she was a little girl. And that's how she got the, the scratch marks. But later on, it turned out that she had been pregnant as a, a teenager. And those were stretch marks. <laughs> <laughs> that was we, a good story she came up with. Yes, for that. in the song it says, a tiger did. You said he did. It's uh, one of the uh, things, <laughs> what's in your life, dear Stephanie. Yeah. Anyway, and that... <laughs> And I love so that. we were naive, and you know, you know, we may have pretended that we were hip and all that, but we're still yeah. kids. Aww. I know, I know. You know, when I do these rock tours, I do rock and roll tours, Uh and I stop and point out where Googie's was Mm -hmm. that was originally Googie's, Mm -hmm. and then it became the eating affair. And I I quote that lyric to me, this is actually the slop, the the slop affair. (laughs) You know, because, yeah, most people don't know that that's where that was. Yeah, they were nice people because they always played our stuff, and he mentions that they always play my songs, and and they were cool, but uh, the food wasn't the greatest. (laughs) But what a hangout. Yeah. You couldn't even move That's right, you couldn't move. Remember when the strip was from Doheny to Crescent Heights? Mm -hmm. You just walked up and down, up up and down. up and down, and you'd see people walking up. You knew everybody, were smoking pot and flowers and incense sticks and everything. It's hard to, to... to tell people today that that existed, yeah, that that kind of feeling existed. Yeah. It was just magical, and there was the Pandora's box where all the kids hung out. This was where the teeny boppers hung out. That, there. Well, I was there. Yeah, I was you were teeny, there. Yeah, and and they when they closed it, we had those riots. Yeah, were yeah. You there? Yeah. Did you go to the riots? Oh no, 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 no. Oh, I was. Boy, we were I... living in the castle then, and so we oh. knew about it, but uh, no, we didn't. Now, are you talking yeah. about the castle, which was next to the um, log cabin? 
No, no, this was, was this was in Las Feliz. Oh, uh, yeah. Did you a, all live there together? Yeah, we all lived there together, oh. and it was like 60, 70 rooms there. Um, the, I think it's Vera Wang. Is she's the one? Yeah, she bought it and she oh. re uh, refurbished it. It looks, you know, like a beautiful mansion. When we lived there, we had this deal. Jack Simmons was a realtor, and he was a friend of Brian's parents. And uh, there's this old silent film, I think is Lillian Gish or someone, who owned this place. And wow. she was living in Paris. So they worked out an arrangement that if we just paid the taxes and kept the, the place up, we could live there. Because it had started to become derelict. You know, yeah, you'd have people probably hanging crumbling, out. I would yeah. imagine. <laughs> so we moved into this place and it became a party house. You yeah. know, and, um, I never went to that house. You never went there, huh? I went to Brian's little house. Yes. Yeah. Because at one point, you all lived in Laurel Canyon, yeah, as I yeah. recall. Yeah, and Brian lived in a little uh, part, or it was a duplex, and he lived below yes. Arthur. Yeah, that's yeah. the one where I think Brian and him, because Jim Morrison was, um, he was peeing in the pool, but he was standing outside of the pool. So uh, this was, was very naughty. Yeah, this was before the doors became the doors, uh -huh. you know. But, and well, so, you guys helped that. Yeah, there's another interesting story. <laughs> we had been offered this fantastic deal to sign with MCA Records. Mm -hmm. And the only thing was um, getting out of our contract with Electra. Yeah. And they wouldn't allow Electra to buy them out. Uh, so we were trying to figure out how we could do this. And so we thought, well, if we hook them up with another group and they're successful, they may let us go. And Jim had been asking me for the longest time to introduce him. So we introduced <laughs> them to the door. So uh, Jack Holzman came from New York and he came down to the whiskey to hear them. And Jim was had been drinking that night and he was kind of stumbling all over the stage. And Jack hears them and he thought, man, why the hell did you have me come to hear this? He hated them. <gasps> so... We managed to get him to come again, uh -huh. and this time they were worse than before. Oh. So, you know, it was like it was over. There was no chance. And, <laughs> you know, again, Serendipity Universe stepped yeah. in, and the doors were playing with the Iron Butterfly. God. And um, Paul Rothschild, who had just gotten out of prison, and we... <laughs> Because he had been in prison for selling grass, we thought that was so cool that he'd been in the joint. So we uh, hooked him up to be our producer on Decapo. Right. And so uh, uh, Jack and him, they came down to the whiskey, and they were basically to hear the Iron Butterfly, and the doors were there. What a again. great double bill. And uh, <laughs> this time, because the fact that the Iron Butterfly were there, Jim was on his best behavior. You know, you have this rivalry thing. Yeah. And so they heard mm -hmm. him now, and Paul Rothschild said, these guys are good. Mm -hmm. And Jack understood then finally. And so they um, signed the doors. Mm -hmm. And we thought, cool, we can get out of our contract. Yeah. You know, but no such luck. Oh, he, he they did. didn't stick to it? That no, was... they they uh, So basically, now they're spending all the money that would have gone to promote love. They're spending it on the doors. And, and mm -hmm. uh, so we had <laughs> oh, billboards in Hollywood and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was annoying. And yeah. so, <laughs> I'll bet it was. <laughs> Jeez. But yeah, that's how the doors became. Yeah. You know, I knew you guys had something to do with it. Yeah. For sure. 
and I was at all those same shows. It's it's really cool, but I never, I was I was in awe of you. Yeah, is what it was. Well, 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 I absolutely was, and I, I don't know if you know anything about this, but Arthur got very angry at me at one point. Yeah, because he said I had had an affair with you. Yeah. And I didn't write about it, and I'm with the band because you were black. Yeah. Do you know I, how um, offensive no. that was to me? First of all, I never had an affair with you. Mercy <laughs> but, told me about that too, and then and said that Arthur was was going on about this, and said, No, 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 no. We didn't have any kind of affair. No, I, 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 I barely right, knew you to say barely, hello. Right. Yes. So. Was, and I wonder. I thought, well, he he's really flipped it, and I thought yeah. Arthur had maybe lost his mind a little bit well Did arthur he? was a bit bipolar yeah and and, and it was so, untreated obviously yeah, so, my God. especially when he started to um become really involved with cocaine that's probably the worst thing that a bipolar person is, can oh is it yeah so God. um yeah so he um he had some some interesting things or he once thought that a Jamaican drug gang had brought seven leopards to his house to, because he owed seven them seven leopards. Yeah, and so he was convinced. <laughs> to the day he died, he was convinced that they had brought these seven leopards to his house. So um, Arthur saw things through yeah. very different eyes. Well, and, uh, Mer- Mercy, you know, Miss Mercy, the GTOs mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. seeing him for quite a while, yeah. and she would bring him over to the house, and I would actually be nervous and afraid. Mm-hmm. He scared me. Well, because he was so unpredictable. Yeah, Arthur was uh, very unpredictable. He and, could, you know. Before he died, pretty pretty soon before he died, he actually called me and left a big long message on my machine, and had Mercy finally convinced him that you and I had never gotten together, mm-hmm. and he said, I, I, "I'm going to apologize. I'm apologizing now, and if you don't accept my apology, fuck you." And he hung up. This was. <laughs> This was my apology from Arthur Leah. I should have saved it. I didn't save it. Well, I was annoyed. I was mad that he would say "fuck you" at the end of his apology. Yeah, well, <laughs> that that would have been uh, apropos of who he was. Yeah. You know, he was I know, uh, but oh yeah, my gosh. it was um, it was an interesting time. And having Arthur, okay, and Brian was bipolar. Brian was was taking lithium, and. Um, Arthur also, so having to deal with two bipolar individuals <laughs> in a group that had this rivalry, oh and it, it was kind of, of interesting. Well, you, you're you such a, a mellow person now. Were you always a, a sort of laid-back yeah. individual? Yes. Well, yes. that you probably kept an even keel in the band then. Well, I tried. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right. um, sometimes, you know, I'd be at my wit's end just, you know, like we were coming back from um i think it was aspen we played and we're on one of these little tiny planes you know eight seater and arthur and brian are wrestling and they're bumping into the seat and you mean physically 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 (laughs) wrestling okay and the um god you should have taken pictures they had smoked hash on the plane and we were smoking okay and the pilot is getting contact high and oh. he's one minute he's singing, Uh-oh. the next minute he's crying, and uh, we're up in the Rockies, you know, and it we could go into the mountains. So this this is uh, I'm scared to death that this is how it's going to end. You know? Oh so, no! Yeah, we had some interesting experiences. 
I was seeing Brian a lot right before he died. We mm-hmm. were hanging out. We mm-hmm. went to the opening of the that big art gallery up there, the on the hill, the Getty, exactly, yeah, yeah. the Getty, yeah. the opening. We, we did, mm-hmm. did that together, and he was really, I guess maybe he had diffused his my mental issues with religion. I mean, he was really Jesus obsessed. Mm-hmm. He really mm-hmm. believed the world started mm-hmm. five thousand years earlier. Yeah, he and his mom. Yeah, his and mom. His sister. And, yeah. and yeah. And I would have dinner at their house, and and I, they'd be discussing that kind of stuff. And I, it was like, I couldn't relate to it, yeah. Johnny. Yeah. I couldn't relate to it. But you couldn't argue with it either. Did no, you ever you discuss religion with him? Yes, I did, and and <laughs> it, it would get really heated because mm-hmm. I tried to explain logically. To him, how that didn't make any sense about the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs and <laughs> yeah, people did, I did not too, and then I live on the Earth at the <laughs> same time. And yeah, he was convinced. I said, "Well, so you mean you'd be walking down the street or whatever the road, and there'd be a dinosaur over there?" You, you thought that, and he was convinced that that was so. He was convinced I that know. Noah's Ark, and he said, "So you mean yes. all of the animals and everything on this Earth were packed into this little boat?" So yes. you you believe that, and so he thought the Bible was inerrant yes. and uh, that everything that I it know. said was true. I know. I was wondering if you had that same experience. Yeah, I, was, I did. It was kind of frustrating, yeah. and then you finally just had to go with it. You said, yeah. "Okay, okay, that's all right. If that's what you believe, right?" Yeah. So um, it, it was interesting, <laughs> to say the least. Wow. Yeah. Now, so you are now doing love. Revisit it? Yeah, yes. we just call it so that people don't get confused. And, and you know, it's I'm the only one left other than uh, Michael Stewart Ware, who was our drummer. Right. And at times he comes in and, and plays he with does? us. He does? I yeah. didn't know that. Oh, yeah, he sits cool. in, but um, uh-huh. his health isn't the greatest right now, so okay. he can't do it all the time. But, right, right. So we travel, and this is the group. They're called Baby Lemonade. Mm-hmm. And they had played with us from, like, 92. So they played with Arthur back then when... I was living in New York. Arthur was still carrying on and playing the music. Mm-hmm. And he got these guys together, and they are fantastic musicians, and they play the songs exactly as they were. So if you were to close your eyes, you wouldn't know that you weren't listening to the original group. Only probably better, because they played these songs so many times that they do them uh-huh. perfectly. And so we tour. We did um, tour a couple of years ago. We played in uh, the UK and Liverpool, and and there were like over eighty thousand people showed up in the rain to see us play in Sefton Park. So uh, we're getting very, very good crowds. And so now we're going back for basically a farewell tour uh-huh. of of the UK and Europe. And we'll be playing again in Liverpool and then the Isle of Wight. That's the first date. God, how thrilling. And, um, and you never get sick of it, I'm sure. No, absolutely no. not. Yeah. <laughs> because back in the day when we would tour, we usually stayed in our hotel rooms. Mm-hmm. And now Georgie and I get to go around and play tourists and we travel and how and fun. see all the people and, and go fun. to restaurants. Now, Georgie is your girlfriend who's yes, sitting right here. Hi, She's Georgie. She's the other half of me. I know. Yes. I love it. I you love, should it. Chat I love with your Georgie. relationship. Your relationship is so cute. Mm. I love to see you when you guys are at my parties and everything. <laughs> we have fun. Together. I know. They're very loving. 47 yes. years to get back together. <laughs> oh, so, so you met way back then? Uh, yeah. Oh. Yes. Once. Yeah, I picked oh. her up. <laughs> She was in front of her school. Now, I was about uh, 17. I think she was 16. No, I was uh, 17. 
You were 17, okay, then. Anyway, um, <laughs> I was cutting school. She was cutting school, and I picked her up. So. <laughs> that is so adorable. <laughs> 47 years later. Yeah, she went so you've to, had a lot of serendipity in your yeah, life. Yeah, really, you know, because <laughs> I'm like the Forrest Gump of music, because if you look from Jimi Hendrix to, um, I played with Miles Davis, we got to be close friends, and so all of these different people that I've known and played with, so you could basically substitute uh, that Forrest Gump character, yeah, that's, yeah. that's me. Yeah, it I've, sounds like it. I've been there, so. Well, let's hear some of your music. What, what is your favorite song if you could oh. if, choose one of your favorites right now to play okay a house is not a motel and okay. there's a very short probably a couple of minutes story to introduce this song okay cool. okay we were playing at a place called the warehouse it's the w-h-e-r warehouse mm-hmm. in san francisco and janice joplin was opening for us and um she's very loud you know she sings really yes. really loud and they had the, the venue partitioned so that people that were under 18 could be on one side and the adults and over 18 on the other. But they were away from the bar. Right. And she, our dressing room was right near where the stage was. And so we went to get away from uh, Janice because we wanted to talk and kind of relax before. And as I said, she's super loud. So we went to the adult section and we sat at a table and just... Out of nowhere comes this guy who turns out to be an AWOL soldier from Vietnam. And he just sits at the table where we're sitting, and he has a big gun, I think a Luger or something. He just sits it on the table <laughs> just to let us know that you know he's, it's there. And he starts telling us about uh, how it was to be in Vietnam, how blood mixed with mud would turn gray. And there would be I'm people. Sure, that's not what you wanted to hear. But th- that's one of the lyrics to the songs. Oh, and when oh. it's mixed with mud, you see it turn oh, to yeah. gray. Right, right, Or you right. hear him. They, they would scream like they've wow. got soldiers that have been hit. They don't know if they're booby trapped or not. And so Americans, they couldn't go and retrieve them and help them. And so they would scream through the night and call out. And I hear you calling my name is another one of the lyrics mm-hmm. and um, that. So Arthur picked up the, the, the story and the essence of how this man felt and how it went. And so that's where A House Is Not A Motel comes from. Okay, great. Well, let's hear it. my house I've got no shackles you can come and look if you want to through the halls you'll see the mantles where the light shines dim all around you and the streets are paved with gold and if someone asks you you can call my name you're just a thought that someone somewhere somehow feels you should be here now, my, my Little Red Book was your biggest hit, right? Yeah, how that, did, how that, did was, that come about? It wasn't. It was written by Burt Bacharach. Correct. Right? Yeah, Arthur and I went to see What's New Pussycat. It was at the Grumman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. And so there was this theme that was going throughout the... This wasn't... It hadn't been released as a record yet. And it's called My Little Red Book. And Manfred Mann were singing it and mm-hmm. it, the, just little snippets of it you know throughout the movie mm-hmm. and so 
I heard that in Arthur, and I said, man, that's pretty cool. So I go home, and I try to remember the song that I heard throughout the movie. Now, of course, <laughs> I get it wrong. I play it in the minor key, and it's a, I play in the major key, rather, and the song is in the minor key. And uh, the beat I changed because it was kind of slower and dirgy uh, as it went throughout the movie. Yeah. So anyway, we started playing it much faster. We changed some of the words because we're trying to remember words, you know. <laughs> and so basically, we changed Bert Bacharach's song, and um, we once we found out how it really went, it was kind of you know baked in. People were accustomed to hearing it played that way. So um, the people at Electra said, just play it the way you always play it. And so well, that's, that's what good. we did. So we played it much faster with a, a different kind of cadence than the original one had. And as I said, Bert wasn't that happy <laughs> until he started receiving royalty checks <laughs> and got himself a brand new pool for that song. <laughs> really? So, yeah. So that was your biggest yeah, hit, that was the right? Biggest radio hit, hit right? One of the biggest radio okay, hit. Okay, cool. Let's yeah. hear it. said they had a, a Brian and Arthur sort of disagreed on things was that because Brian was such a god dang such a great freaking songwriter and Arthur was jealous of the songs it his, was... his ability because some of his songs certainly are my favorites mm -hmm. maybe it's because I had such a crush on him but I love his songwriting Brian because Brian was a musician as well as a, a songwriter his songs were different because, and, and that was a, a blessing and also was a curse because we had to work so hard to get Brian's songs to where they could be part of an album and people would listen to them mm. because he was kind of very much into Broadway shows. Right. And, and, and um, he did a ah. lot of bluegrass and folk stuff that sounded cool in, in its uh, place, but as far as being a rock and roll group, we had to kind of change Brian's songs, okay. and that was kind of a point of contention. But with Arthur, Arthur wasn't a musician. He knew a couple of chords on the guitar, but he couldn't play anything. Oh, so Arthur okay. would sing lyrics to the poetry that he'd written, and then Brian and me and Kenny would put the music to that. Mm. Okay. And so working with Brian's songs was a, a different experience. All of them were, you know, interesting, but... Uh, it was just a, a different way would, of doing it. Would you say they were kind of corny, his songs? Some of them were. I mean, they, they're a little corny anyway, but I love them because I'm such a romantic. Uh -huh. um, could we hear Orange Skies with that? Yeah, now see, that's that's a perfect example. <laughs> Brian's, if you listen, Brian has an album, I think, called If You Believe In. Yes. And I believe that's on there. But the version that Brian sings is the version that he presented us. Mm, and it's okay. Orange Skies. Yes, I know. Pendleton? And I know, so, I know, I know. Okay. I so, have that record, of yeah, course. Yeah. So we changed it entirely, <laughs> and 
but we had to change it, otherwise it would never have been played. Well, let's hear that. covered song that we did and it was a Miller beer commercial and it's still being covered now the damned and alone again other, alone, alone again, again yeah. yeah and um, he wrote that too yeah Brian wrote that and one. And, and was that presented in a in a kind of mushy way too and you had to really work with that well, to get that okay when we first started it <laughs> It was going to be a kind of bluegrassy song with Brian and me playing banjos. Mm. Now, we are guitar players, and we were naive at the time, so we thought, hell, banjo has strings, and so we thought we could just rent banjos and play. <laughs> and so when we get to the studio and try to play alone again with banjos, it just didn't work because neither of us could play the damn things. <laughs> They're tuned differently. They're, oh, everything is so different funny. about a banjo. So... <sighs> Uh, David Angel, he's was our uh, arranger. He thought he liked the song, and he says there's, there's got to be a way you guys can do this song. And so, I was warming up, and I was playing Spanish riffs and just mm. going, you know, getting my fingers oh. together. And he said, "Why don't you do that? Why don't you play that kind of stuff in it?" Mm. So we mm -hmm. changed the intro to me playing a guitar, kind of a guitar lead. And then uh, we overdubbed me playing these little Spanish runs. Mm. And it changed the tenor of the song. <laughs> and it was Brian and I think David came up with the idea together that if they used a mariachi trumpet, and the trumpet would mirror what I played on the guitar. So that's what you're hearing when he takes the solo in the center. This is when everybody stands up and applauds is when the trumpet solo comes in. And that's basically him playing um, oh. the Spanish riffs that, that I had done. So innovative back then. That was you were such so far a, ahead of so many, with all the lush mm -hmm. instrumentation and stuff. It was so, so far ahead. It was so interesting because the song was almost uh, just shelved. We were very close to not doing it at all, and the only reason is because of David hearing that and deciding that a Spanish flavor. Because uh -huh. we had never heard the song that way. You right, know? right. We heard it as a kind of bluegrassy song and had a different cadence because. Brian's songs were usually pie in the sky and rainbow, chocolate-covered yes. rainbows yes. and that kind of I stuff. I know. So, he was so uh, sweet. Yeah, he had an interesting take on life, you know. Yeah. Well, let's hear that song then. Yeah. 
here's the song, probably the song that we're probably most known for. It's called Seven and Seven Is. Yes. Now that one has been covered probably by Al, let's see, Alice Cooper covered it. I think Tom Petty did it. Uh, gosh, it's been covered more probably than any other song next to Alone Again. And um, that song started out as um, kind of an autobiographical love song. Arthur um, had this crush, I guess, a girl named Anita Billings from high school, and he called her Pretty. That's, right. So we have a song called Message to Pretty, right. and Seven and Seven Is, and several of, of our songs relate to her. Hmm. And this one, you know, I was mentioning how it was to change Brian's stuff around. Well, this was a kind of Dylan-esque folk song that Arthur had put together. And um, when we get to the studio, it wasn't working. So we decided to change it into something else. And Kenny had gotten this bass pedal. It's a bass distortion pedal. Now, at that time, you never... This was a, a prototype from um, Box Instruments. And most of the times when you heard bass uh, on records, it was a clear, booming bass. It wasn't a distorted bass. And so this was probably one of the first songs that had a distorted bass. Mm. People call it a punk song, but mm. it it would be like controlled chaos is what I would call it. And <laughs> cool. it took us like almost 100 takes of playing this song over. My fingers are literally <gasps> bleeding. That's unusual for back then. Yeah, but <sighs> we played live, so we didn't do much overdub. So when we did our song, all of us were in a studio playing together. Oh, and so everything was, was yeah. live. So different than now, because I played on sessions where nobody was there but me now. And <laughs> yeah. so yeah. things are different. <laughs> that's that's you know, no but, fun, though. Yeah, right. So There's you no don't, vibe. You don't get any input and give yeah. a tape from the other musicians. So it's the... Uh, we have the technical advantages, but as far as the uh, intimacy and the soul and give and take of the music, it's, it's lacking there. Yeah. yeah. Now, did Tom Petty and Alice Cooper record that? Yeah. Um, oh, my God, let's hear those. Yeah, you can hear Alice Cooper's version. I'm not sure if Tom recorded it or not, but I know he played that quite a bit. But Alice Cooper has it on one of his albums. And, uh, gosh, there's other people that recorded it on, for, oh, gosh, there must be a live version. Yeah, of Tom it, Petty it'll, it'll probably somewhere online. You can, can find out all of the, the groups that have covered yeah, that. Yeah, let's hear some yeah. of those. I'm not 
to ask you about your influences growing up. Well, my dad was very much into jazz and he loved blues. So I listened to people like, it's sad there was a story about Kenny Burrell today having some, some difficulties. But he was one of my first influences. Mm. Um, John Coltrane was an influence. So I liked jazz and blues. Mm, you know? Okay. And so I, I would listen to them. And my father loved gospel, too. So on Sundays, we'd, that's mm. all we'd hear, the Pilgrim Travelers or the Five Blind Boys of the Alabama. Soul Stirrers. Yeah, and Soul Stirrers. They were my favorite. Oh, yeah, my God. Sam I'm Cook. a Sam Cooke yeah, freak. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love him so, so much. So I had kind of an eclectic Thing, mm-hmm. upbringing as mm-hmm. far as music so um i try to incorporate those different genres of music in, into what i play but um you guys are so revered by so many bands so many people cite you guys influence yeah we had a, as i said because of the fact that we had all of these kind of with brian and the folk and the broadway and and me blues and kenny forsey was mm-hmm. into surf and rock so we melded it all together and so um, when you listen to the first album, the second and the third one, it's not like it's the same group. They're totally different styles and, uh-huh. and genres yeah, of music. Yeah, and it all works. It yeah. all melded together mm-hmm. in a brand new way. That yeah. so, new sound nobody's ever heard before. So that. we had fun. So, and we, uh, because of, and this is the thing that I cannot understand. There were very good Groups they're playing in Hollywood from the Birds, the Buffalo Springfield, mm-hmm. and Butterfly, yeah. and that Love was able to outdraw all of them. And also when we played with them, uh, the Doors had the number one record in the country, and it would be Love, and then in lowercase uh, letters, and the Doors. <laughs> you know, well, so. yeah, you were loved here yeah. in town. That is yeah. for sure. You were the. About the grassroots. You started. Oh yeah, we were playing at the Brave New World, and we were the grassroots then. And Lou Adler came down, and he had been drinking. Now, he'd been there before to see us play, so he knew very well who we were. And he's with this young lady, and I think he's trying to impress her. Mm-hmm. So he's telling us how much that we're going to be the next Beatles and that he's going to do all of this stuff with us. Now, unfortunately, at that point, we didn't know who Lou Adler was, right? <laughs> and so he's telling us all the stuff he's going to do. And we were on break, Brian and I, so we, um, Brian says, man, why don't you contact our manager? And I think he was kind of curt in the way he oh. said that. And Lou Adler just, he just turned black. He just was pissed off. And how dare you talk to me that way? And don't you know who I am? And we didn't know who he was. But, and so he started cursing. And, said, and then he said, I'm stupid. Like, you'll never work in this town again. And we, as I said, we didn't know how important he was. So we're just kind of shining him on. And about oh, a couple months later, one of the regulars at uh, The Brave New World said, we heard your song on the radio. Mr. Jones, that's what she called it. And I said, we don't have a record. She said, yeah, they play the grassroots. And um, what Lou Adler had done is he uh, had gone to San Francisco and he'd gotten studio musicians together and they had co-opted the name Grassroots. And he knew that was our name. Yeah, that was his way of getting back at us. But it was also a way because everybody in Hollywood thought that that was our record so they rushed out to buy it it goes up the charts 
Because they're thinking it's us. And then when they realize it's not, that doesn't matter because it's, it's been, sold already. It's already sold. <laughs> and so that's how that song just moved oh, up the charts. Oh, okay. So there because, was, yeah, they, you know, you know, they were good. I saw yeah. them play too, but they didn't go anywhere. I mean, yeah. they really didn't go anywhere after that. Now I know why. Yeah. So <laughs> there was method to his madness. So, so anyway. We break when we went to see Pete Townsend. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you hid. You hid from him. From I don't blame him because we uh, kind of. He, he's not happy with with. Um, didn't want to get into it with right. Mr. Abner All again, those years later, yeah. Yeah, he's, we still have you know, but he he claims that um, he had had tried to find the the copyrights or the trademarks and that he was unable to. Well, we had what was called the poor man's trademark yeah. copyright. You mailed it to yourself. Yeah, you get yeah. It, mail it to yourself with a registered letter <laughs> and the judge opens it in court. And if you have prior claim, you have prior claim. But now we know, later on, we knew who um, Lou Abner was. Yeah. And we knew he was important. And so the lawyer said, you know, you really don't want to make an enemy of this guy. And if you do that... You're gonna have it, so why not? They've released this record. They're the grassroots, so why don't you just change your name? Uh huh. And you got the best name ever. So we're driving <laughs> of all down. Time. We're driving down Melrose, right? <laughs> and we see a billboard that says "Lub Love Brasiers." And <laughs> so I tell Brian, you know, Arthur used to work in the shipping department of Love Brasiers, <laughs> and so we start laughing at Arthur and kidding him. And Brian said, man, that would be a cool name for a group. And so I said, yeah, but it should be L-O-V-E, not L-U-V. Yeah. And that's how we became Oh, love. my God. started with a brassiere. <laughs> right, with a brassiere. That is such wonderful news. <laughs> Listen to that, everybody. The name Love started with a frickin' brassiere. Again. And I couldn't wait to get mine off, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Serendipity. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of serendipity. Yeah, maybe we should have called ourselves serendipity. Yeah. Well, I would like to hear your version. Of serendipity? No. <laughs> no, of seven and seven inches. Oh, okay. There you, well, there yeah. you go. That's she what I want. She brought wanted. it right back. You yeah. see how she did that? <laughs> yes. Oh, and by the way, there's something I failed to mention. Arthur and Anita, a.k.a. Pretty, were both born on the same day. Oh. And so uh, the seventh of March, and so seven and seven is. is oh, I did often wonder about that. Yeah, well, there you go. On the flip side is number fourteen, which has nothing to do with it. But anyway. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much, Johnny, for showing up here today and driving yeah. all the way from Glendale. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for and, having me. And I've enjoyed it so much. Well, it's been my pleasure. And I'm sure everybody out there has enjoyed this incredible conversation. Yeah, I'm, as I said before, I'm writing a book. So this is kind of, all of these things are fresh in my mind because every night I start writing yeah. things down. And these what are you calling stories. it? I'm calling it Just Another Day in the Life. Oh, okay, good. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. And I thank you.
How thrilling was that? I bet you were just sitting on the edge of your seat, even if you're in your car. I bet, you know, you might have had an accident that was so damn cool. Uh, I hope you didn't, though. I hope you didn't. And until next time, I am Miss Pamela, and you've been listening to My Pajama Party. And keep up with all of us at Pantheon Podcasts and me at PamelaDebar.com. And I also want to say that I do writing workshops all over the country as well as Toronto and London. I have a lot of them coming up. So I'm coming right to Chicago and Tulsa and Nashville and New Orleans and New York and Toronto. So please go to my website and sign up and write with me, okay? You want to write about yourself and make yourself feel good about yourself. As a matter of fact, I'm going to give you a little tip. Here's my words of wisdom. I want you to not listen to the bullshit that your mind gives you all the time. If the, your mind tells you, you can't do that, you can't do this, oh, it's bullshit, so just erase it. You know, a long time ago, I, I had a teacher called Hilda in New York, and she said, what you have to do when you have the bullshit thought is say, erase, erase, erase. So that's my tip for the day. Erase the bullshit. Standing over there Girl, you look so good Yeah, you look all right Hey, girl Hear me calling your name Baby, I wear your walk So you drive me insane Oh, you look so good Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. <laughs>